Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 18, Pulp Fiction. Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Himalaya, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. For only the second time on the Super 70 podcast, I've invited someone on, and for the first time on the podcast, I've invited the guest host to step in for the entire episode. Mike White is a writer and filmmaker who has written for such prestigious print institutions as Cinemascope and Detroit's Metro Times. He served on film juries at Slamdance, Cinekink, Micro Cinefest, Blue Water, and the Kansas City Film Festivals. You can see him in several documentaries, including David Goodis, To a Pulp, about the noir writer, the People vs. George Lucas, which is self-explanatory, and probably most infamously for Who Do You Think You're Fooling About Pulp Fiction. A former projectionist familiar with both film and digital projectors, Mike is also the author of three books on film, Impossibly Funky, Cinema Detours, and Mad Movies with the L.A. Connection. You can find them all on Amazon.com. Mike is probably most well-known for hosting the Projection Booth podcast, which you can find wherever you find podcasts, and at www.projectionbooth.com. I first came across Mike sometime in 2011 when I heard his episode on Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One, and I haven't turned him off since. When you get some time, and everyone should, you should check out his feed on his website. I strongly recommend his episodes on Star Wars, The Song of the South, The Devil in Miss Jones, and Sorcerer. When Mike mentioned on the Twitter that he'd like to do a Pulp Fiction commentary, I volunteered the Super 70 podcast since that is the format of this show. Mike has timed the commentary himself using his own DVD copy of Pulp Fiction, which he will mark himself. All I'm going to do is kill the headlights and put it in neutral. Please welcome and enjoy Mike White and his commentary of Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Hitting the play button in three, two, one. Hi, Mike White, doing the audio commentary for Pulp Fiction in cooperation with Dylan Davis's Super 70s podcast. I'm from the projection booth, and I'm here to talk about Pulp Fiction, beginning with the Miramax logo, which has meant a lot of things over the years. For a little while, it meant quality films, and then it meant films that were going to get Oscars, maybe through nefarious means or not. And then... It meant a whole lot of different stuff as of 2017. Some people say that this scene begins with the sound of a motorcycle, which is Butch riding away with Fabian for the end of the movie, but that really doesn't make sense because at this point, Jules and Vincent are in this cafe, and we know that the end of the movie... Vincent is dead. Spoilers. By the way, spoilers for this commentary. Hopefully you've seen this movie before. This is one of the, I believe, music supervisors who is playing our waitress here. If you look carefully, you're going to see 
Vincent walking. Uh, I think it's coming up here pretty soon. This whole idea of opening up a movie in a diner, very similar to Quentin Tarantino's last film, which was Reservoir Dogs. We'll be talking about that quite a bit. I believe this is Amanda Plummer's only appearance in a Tarantino film. He had seen Plummer and Roth perform together, wanted to have them in this, though he had talked in interviews about how much he would have liked Roth to play the Vincent Vega character. I'm not sure if he could have pulled that off. And then he was talking about how much he'd like to see Tim Roth and Gary Oldman in a movie, and I'm not sure when uh, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead came out, but they definitely got to be in a movie, at least once, if not more than that. Pretty soon, Ringo here is going to start talking about robbing a bank with a phone. You could be talking, uh, I think that the whole evil genius case, uh, the guy going into a into a bank with a explosive device around his neck, that that came a few years after this. I think it was more of a reference to Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, where they do um, rob a bank via phone, where they've got... Uh, the bank manager's daughter and wife at home, and then Peter Fonda comes in and manages to take out all kinds of money. This is probably my least favorite line in the entire movie. Wow, what a delivery. Hope I don't put too many uncomfortable silences in this commentary. So I'm going to be talking about the movie, but I'll also be talking about me. I figure it's, uh, you know, one of those self-indulgent times. I have a long history of uh, not knowing Quentin Tarantino, but kind of uh, circling in the orbit, let's say, circling down the same drain. And uh, that started way back in 92 when I first saw Reservoir Dogs, and it really put the zap on my head. It was just an incredible film, and I loved it. I managed to get a bootleg screener version of it from a friend who bought it off the streets in New York back when those things used to happen. There we go. There's Vincent in the background there on his way to the bathroom. Somehow he's got his copy of Modesty Blaze. I'm not sure where he's keeping this book, but uh, maybe he's doing the same thing as the, uh, the captain in the Gold Watch story. We never know. But yeah, loved Reservoir Dogs and then found out that it wasn't necessarily as original as it was purported to be, the whole City on Fire connection. In 94, I made a little video called Who Do You Think You're Fooling, which cut together pieces of Reservoir Dogs and Ringo Lamb's City on Fire. I think a lot of people are familiar with this upcoming line here because of the soundtrack, and then you'll hear a different take of it later on when we repeat this last little bit of the scene and go back into this robbery. A little bit of a freeze frame, kind of a Martin Scorsese thing there. Roll credits, band apart, of course, being named after the Jean-Luc Godard film. Jersey Films, one of Danny DeVito's companies. The second, maybe third film by Quentin Tarantino. I think he's not counting My Best Friend's Birthday. 
This use of Dick Dale really put him back on the map. This use of John Travolta really put him back on the map. Of course, we wouldn't have that amazing Black Eyed Peas song without this use of Dick Dale. Oh, my God. Yeah, some of the hell that this movie hath wrought. I'm really glad that Quentin stuck to one font in this movie that has definitely disturbed me in subsequent films where he likes to play with different fonts during the opening credits. I think uh, it's one of the reasons I haven't gone back to Inglorious Bastards since I saw it the first time. I was just so disturbed by the font usage. So it is definitely one thing that I love about this movie is the use of surf rock as this kind of spaghetti western sound that he's going for, as opposed to just actually lifting spaghetti western soundtracks like he would do in Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill and um, what was the last one, Django Unchained and... I guess he kind of stuck to, well, he actually had Morricone kind of recycle his own stuff for um, Hateful Eight. Catherine Rackman, the sister of Ricky Rackman, Ricky Rackman of 120 Minutes fame, a uh, kind of a heavy metal dude, uh, the late Sally Menke, one of many people who has passed away since this movie has been created. She edited quite a few of... Tarantino's films. Stories by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, though Roger Avery probably should have gotten a screenplay credit, but I guess he kind of sold his rights to that. So I read this screenplay right around the time that this movie was winning the Palme d'Or over in Cannes probably sometime in April of 1994. It's been a long tradition that Tarantino's scripts would leak beforehand, and this is years before Gawker. So I think I've read every single one of his scripts before the movie came out, and I started doing that with this film. And when I finally saw the film in September of 94, it was really as if I'd already seen the movie before, because I might talk a lot of shit about Tarantino, but one thing I will say is that he can create such a great vision in your head when you're reading his screenplays, that you can just see everything that's happening in your head. He's not giving camera directions necessarily. He's he's talking. I mean, he did in some of his earlier screenplays, especially like, I think, Natural Born Killers. But with something like this, he is really giving you where the close-ups are going to be, but via his language. He is giving you this really great, at this point, very exciting dialogue and taking you into this whole world and being able to paint this picture in your head. So like I said, when I saw this film, it really felt like I was seeing it the second time. A lot of this dialogue is coming right from Tarantino's own experience because he wrote the screenplay or rewrote part of it or whatever over in Amsterdam. One of famous, one of Tarantino's famous trunk shots. We would get that in a lot of films. I don't think we have that in Hateful Eight, but I don't know. I was only able to watch that movie one time. Let's take a, a movie that's set in a small location and shoot it in 70 millimeter. That makes a lot of sense.
So this whole idea of these two gangsters talking, just kind of bullshitting. Yes, we're getting some of the plot here. We're getting introduced to Mia Wallace, Marcellus Wallace, some of the characters that are going to come back later. Getting introduced to Tarantino's foot fetish, which if people haven't seen, My Best Friend's Birthday is all over that, as well as a lot of other things. But that's really where the uh, film, where his filmic obsession with feet started as far as making films. Didn't get a whole lot of that in Reservoir Dogs. But with this whole thing, this back and forth between these two gangsters, it really reminds me a lot of Francois Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. This whole idea of these two gangsters, I believe they were Charles Evans-Noir's older brothers and that, his characters, and... They are talking about women's underthings, and uh, one of the guys is talking about uh, his sister's panties, I believe, and just how soft they are. And they go off into these tangents, and we'll talk about these things, and I really feel like they helped inform Jules and Vincent. And of course, Jules gets his name from Jules and Jim, though some people would say that Jules and Vincent get their names actually from Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger and twins. And there is a Danny DeVito connection here. But we know that Tarantino likes Truffaut. We also know that Tarantino is familiar with Shoot the Piano Player, as well as another adaptation of David Goodis, which is Nightfall, which was directed by Jacques Tourneur. Tourneur is one of the influences that Tarantino listed off in Reservoir Dogs, and he's also, Nightfall is kind of an inspiration for Butch, insofar as Aldo Ray's character, his brush cut, the way that he carries himself, informs the Butch character quite a bit. I'm going to try not to talk out of my ass too much when it comes to this stuff. All of these things that I'm saying are pretty well documented, just pulling them all together. There are other times where I'll probably go off onto more film theory-y kind of things, but I'll try to keep that to a minimum. And instead, I'll just, you know, continue to talk about myself. So 1994, I make this movie called Who Do You Think You're Fooling? In the early part of 95, was it early part of 95? Somewhere around there, I sent it off to a festival in New York called the New York Underground Film Festival and ended up getting programmed there. And there was a whole lot of hullabaloo as far as was my movie going to get shown? Was it not going to get shown? Apparently, it did get shown during the press screening, or maybe it got pulled during the press screening, but it definitely got shown during the festival. It actually got shown three times. Uh, I only was aware of it once, but then the next day I heard that it got shown two more times. And that festival was run by Andrew Gerland and Todd Phillips. Andrew Gerland has gone on to do a few things more in a writer kind of a way. Uh, Todd Phillips went on to be a director, did things like Starsky and Hutch. He's doing the new Joker film, bunch of stuff. And he had done a few films before the festival, documentary about Gigi Allen, a uh, 
Let's see. Well, he did Fred House, but that was a few years after that film got pulled from HBO because there was some discussion about some of it being fabricated. Which is funny because Andrew Gerlin ended up working with this guy, Huck Botko, and Huck Botko um, makes terrific fabricated documentaries, mockumentaries. Um, he made a whole series of short films. This is Huck Botko I'm talking about. Um, one called Baked Alaska, um, Until There Were None, about this guy who's hunting uh, bald eagles. Really good stuff. But um, so, yeah, he was familiar with mockumentary, as was uh, Todd Phillips, apparently. But, yeah, there's this whole thing about Phillips and Gerland trying to, quote unquote, play the media and whether they're going to show this movie or not. And whether Gerland or sorry, whether Phillips had a connection at Miramax or not, because right around the same time that the festival is happening, is around the same time that the Oscars are about to happen, that they're ramping up, that Tarantino gets a Oscar nomination, Tarantino and Avery. So uh, Miramax was not a big fan of me or the festival for playing this thing that was questioning Tarantino's legitimacy. And then I'll tell you in a few minutes about... You're Still Not Fooling Anybody, which was the kind of tongue-in-cheek sequel to Who Do You Think You're Fooling? That goes through and calls out many of the similarities between Pulp Fiction and other films. Now, when it came to Pulp Fiction, it wasn't just one thing that Tarantino took from, like City on Fire, like Reservoir Dogs, but he took from many things, including... A film called Karate Kiba, starring Sonny Chiba, which came out in 76 and then was re-edited and put out again a few years later as a film called The Bodyguard. And it starts with this whole quote from the Bible, quote-unquote, which is this Ezekiel 25:17 speech. Now, some people have complained to me that of this isn't plagiarism. Tarantino didn't take from a movie. It's from the Bible. But if you actually go out and look and read Ezekiel 25, 17, you'll see that it is nothing like, well, very unlike, let's say, what Jules has to say here, but is almost word for word what they say in The Bodyguard, Karate Kiba. I think the only difference is the last line where instead of, you'll know that my name is the Lord, uh, they say in that movie, you'll know my name is Chiba, the bodyguard. So, yeah, that was one of the things. By the time Pulp Fiction came out, by the time uh, it got very popular, people started coming out of the woodwork and telling me, hey, did you know that this is from this? And ever since then, ever since Who Do You Think You're Fooling, which is now 25 years old, now I am the guy that you go to with your, hey, this is the same thing, uh, or look at this influence, or uh, weird conspiracy theories. You know, I'm hearing all these weird conspiracy theories about, oh yeah, Roger Avery was aware of Sally Menke, and she was actually being killed, and all this, and I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? So, totally nutso stuff that I want 
nothing to do with, but occasionally things filter over to me where I'm just like, oh, well, that's interesting. Or, wow, somebody should actually probably talk about that. So things like when Tarantino was going out with a writer who went by the name of Leanne Spiderbaby and she was caught red-handed plagiarizing a bunch of articles um, and she was an alleged writer for Fangoria and a bunch of other things. Well, you know, yeah, I'm going to probably call her out on that because Tarantino being such a uh, homage artist, let's say, uh, wanted to make sure that people were aware that he was uh, in bad company, let's say. More than that, I wanted to make sure that the people who were actually writing these articles were getting proper credit and not, uh, you know, they weren't seeing a dime of her revenue and she was definitely making a lot more than they were about this. Should I talk about the briefcase? I probably shouldn't talk about the briefcase because every fucking buddy talks about the briefcase. Uh, if that was Marcellus Wallace's soul in that briefcase, then I think that Vincent would be a lot more open to this idea of a miracle happening. And he's not, so I don't think it's his soul. What is it? I think it's a MacGuffin. That's about it. I think it's an homage to either uh, Kiss Kiss Me Deadly or maybe even Kiss Me Safana the Park, but... I don't think that it's someone's soul in there, especially when uh, Pumpkin later on is like, is that what I think it is? Sam Jackson was a star at this point. He had been in things like Amos and Andrew, Loaded Weapon 1, but really after this film... After this film, it was really never the same for him. John Travolta, well, he was a star more in the 70s. He had made a string of, let's say, questionable films. Uh, Things like uh, Shout, or Chains of Gold. He was in quite a film, quite a few of the Look Who's Talking films. I think the one that really did him wrong was The Experts in 1989. I remember when that movie was on uh, Siskel and Ebert, they were not kind to it at all. Things like Perfect weren't necessarily that good either. That was 1985. Though a lot of people credit Perfect for putting the whole idea of aerobics on the map. Some people say that he's the guy that put disco on the map of Saturday Night Fever. He's the guy that put uh, the whole urban cowboy move- movement, which we had one of those in uh, our city, the mechanical bull uh, with urban cowboy. He was the guy who uh, put aerobics on the map of perfect. I'm not sure how much I really believe all that. I think he was just kind of cashing in on some trends. After Pulp Fiction, he made some phenomenal films such as John Woo's Face Off, Broken Arrow, Get Shorty, but then he also made a bunch of shit like White's Man, White Man's Burden and uh, Primary Colors. And now it's kind of, I mean, he's kind of back to where he was. He makes a lot of interesting choices. He'll do some good stuff sometimes, like Hairspray, but then he'll make other things like Gotti.
we've had two of the few deaths in this film. There's not a whole lot of death, though a lot of people think that this movie is super violent. Tarantino loves his title cards. I'm trying to think of a movie where he hasn't used title cards, and I'm hard-pressed for it. The tagline for this movie, and actually written on the screenplay, was three stories about one story. And there's definitely a lot of themes that go through this movie, so I'm not exactly sure what the one story is. There are stories of fealty, of redemption, of honor, of business. Business comes up over and over again. In fact, right now, Marcellus is talking about business. And the whole idea of transactional things just keeps happening, tit for tat. What are you going to give me? I mean, we see some money exchange. We, of course, have John Travolta, the Jules character, Vincent character, sorry, buying heroin later on in the film. He's very concerned about a $5 milkshake later on in the film. But, you know, in this whole idea of Butch making bets uh, for in favor of himself. So there's a lot of money discussion in here. And that kind of figures, because we are talking about gangsters, gangsterism, the underworld. Here's some money right here. And, of course, we have to have the N-word. That is one of Tarantino's favorite things. This whole idea, too, of acting. I mean, we just had Jules give this performance of the Ezekiel 2517 speech. This whole idea of who we present to the world is definitely out there. Also, I would say that there are, well, of course, themes of time. Time is fragmented. That's another Tarantino trait. He loves to fragment time. He's a big believer in that whole Jean-Luc Godard line about a movie should have a beginning, middle, and end, but not necessarily in that order. Loves doing that. Um, but there's also a lot of fixation on the anus. You know, if I if I were uh, to to uh, uh, really get out there, I'd say uh, the anus is at the center of this film, and really it is it is almost literally at the center with the whole gold watch story. And throughout this movie, we're going to get we're going to get Vincent with his uh, irritable bowel syndrome, constantly having to go to the bathroom. Uh, we're going to have, uh, of course, Marcellus getting anally raped later on. There's going to be a lot of discussion about uh, the ass in here. And even more than that, we're going to get a lot of bathrobes in this film. And there's a lot of eating that goes on in this movie as well. A lot of things that take place around food, restaurants, carry out. I don't know if they serve food at this bar or not, but 
I would not be surprised. But yeah, I wonder if the whole idea of the eating, the food, the oral sensation of that, if that plays into the anal theme that I'm also seeing in this movie. I told you I was going to try to keep some of this film theory shit down to a minimum, but it's got to crop up sometimes. Especially because I'm not going to talk about any goddamn briefcase. I noted that when I was doing research on this film, I was seeing a lot of people comparing it to a fairy tale. I think Dana Poland in uh, their book Pulp Fiction really talks a lot about the idea of Pulp Fiction being a being a fairy tale and this whole idea of who's the main character and the journey that they take. It's not necessarily a hero's journey. I think Marcellus Wallace being this kind of big bad wolf character, especially us not seeing him for so much of the film playing with who is this guy. We're not going to see him now. We're not going to see him until much later in the film. We'll see the back of him a few times. A lot of people get off on some of these weird little connections around here like oh my god it was bruce willis it was butch that actually keyed vincent's car and he's going to talk about that later um yeah okay that's cool if you're into that stuff that's great it was so nice seeing Rosanna arquette in this film i think that tarantino more than putting people like Robert Forrester kind of back in the limelight and putting John Travolta back in the limelight. It was people like Rosanna Arquette, where it was great to see her in this. It was great seeing Jennifer Jason Lee later on in Hateful Eight. Though with Jennifer Jason Lee, she's kind of always been around. Especially because just recently she was kind of a major player in the Twin Peaks revival. Maybe people objected to the drug use in this film as well. Bava, of course, being a reference to Mario Bava. Eric Stoltz would go on to be in Roger Avery's uh, next film, which was Killing Zoe, uh, which actually... There's weird connections that I have with these guys. Uh, <laughs> so he, he makes Killing Zoe, and on that movie, probably as like a, I don't know, a freaking grip or a boom mic operator or something, is the ex-boyfriend of my ex-wife. So we had to stick around when we went to see that movie at the theater so that she could see Robbie's name in the credits. So that was kind of weird. Oh, uh, yeah, I think Roger Avery... Deserved a little better, but that line when uh, Lance says that it's dead, that it is dead, well, it's dead. It could have been saying it's dead as Dillinger, which was a line from West of Our Dogs, but really in the screenplay he says it's dead as Disco, but that's kind of a rude thing to say to John Travolta, so I think that's why they changed the line. So I'm guessing this point of putting it in a baggie 
rather than a balloon is to confuse Mia later on why she thinks that the heroin is cocaine. Now, I am not familiar with heroin or cocaine other than its use in the movies. So I thought that you did snort heroin. So her whole reaction, um, I mean, I know that you cook it up and I know that you shoot it. I've seen train spotting. I mean, the 90s was rife with heroin and heroin films. But I thought that people also snorted it as well. I mean, I've heard that with like meth, you can do several things, shoot it, smoke it do all kinds of stuff, snort it maybe. So I don't know that I was, I was confused by that as far as why her snorting it caused such an adverse reaction, especially since she had smoked cocaine a couple times before she sm snorts the heroin. Here we talk about the rules, the rules of men, as it were years before the Budweiser commercials talking about the, the man card. A lot of low angle shots, especially in this sequence. I guess it's because these guys are supposed to be seen as maybe being uh, more powerful or knowledgeable than they are. Bullwinkle Part 2 coming up here, another use of the surf rock. Other than a couple songs on the soundtrack, this was a really, really solid soundtrack. That whole... Uh, what was that? If love is a red dress, hang me in rags. I really could have done without that. It's kind of like Reservoir Dogs. There are a couple songs on the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack that I would just skip over constantly. But uh, for the most part, a solid soundtrack. One of our many process shots that we have while we're driving, being intercut with the shooting of the heroin and thus explaining why John Travolta is so out of it in the next uh, sequence here. I guess you want to shoot heroin before you go out with your boss's wife. It seems like an unwise decision. And it doesn't seem like he's really keeping his eyes on the road. But, you know, that's me. I'm being very judgmental. I'm sorry. We meet Uma Thurman's character here, Mia Wallace. We're going to meet her in stages. We're going to have her fractured, which really, it, it takes away from the impact of her feet being on screen. You know, that we get like this really good series of, uh, of her feet, which I know Tarantino is probably just absolutely loving, but it actually fits with the introduction of her. We get introduced to her through first her voice and her handwriting with this note, and then we'll see what, the back of her head, we'll see her lips, and then we'll see her, uh, I believe her hands, we'll see her feet, and then we'll get her all together. Coming up, we have the, uh, the introduction of the confused Travolta meme. There we are, the back of Mia. There we go. There's the confused Travolta. Vincent is kind of a Luddite, though it fits with this. I don't know why you have CDs and then you have a reel-to-reel -reel tape player, but whatever. You know, if that's your setup, go for it. And there we have the introduction of the word disco, which is fitting for John Travolta.
Uma Thurman would become Quentin Tarantino's muse. They would work together quite a bit uh, until I'm not sure if his treatment of her during uh, Kill Bill is what finally ended their relationship, but I don't think that they've worked together since then. So, yeah, putting her life in jeopardy probably wasn't a, a good idea, especially when you credit your movie to being uh, created by Q and U. More drug usage. Cocaine being her drug of choice. I guess we really want to get out of our minds for this, uh, it's not a date, but for this uh, meeting here. Now we have downward angles onto Vincent. Yes, he is looking up at the painting, but it was nice to have that as a downward angle to show him as being not in power. And there we have the famous shot of the feet. Now there was a whole sequence here, which I'm really glad they cut, this, inter this interview section. And that's why she says that an Elvis band would love this. because she goes through and asks some different personality questions. Don't be a rectangle. That fucking bugs me every single time. Jackrabbit Slims apparently was uh, heavily influenced by an Elvis film, as well as Howard Hawks' Redline 7000, this kind of look to some of the restaurants and the racing themes in those movies. There's a line later on when they are cleaning up the car from Marvin's brains where he's supposed to be saying, um, you're getting me close to this red line. I'm red line 7,000. I don't think that made it into the final film, but I could be wrong. Because like I said, I'm more familiar with the screenplay than the movie itself. I ended up only seeing this movie, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 times, whereas I read the screenplay quite a few times. And the screenplay just kind of burned itself into my brain. So there's actually some lines that I think I know that are just in the screenplay and not in the final version. So that whole scene of Mia interviewing Vincent is really something I'm familiar with, um, just because I've read the screenplay so many times. Um, but like I said, it, it made sense to cut that out. It really, they didn't need any of that stuff, and they just went right in here. Um, you didn't necessarily need to know that he is the cousin of Suzanne Vega, the folk singer. You didn't necessarily know, need to know that he wanted to be beat up by Emma Peel from the Avengers, that he prefers Elvis to the Beatles. Yeah, it's okay. Passing Mia. He's more intrigued by the surroundings than Mia. Machine Gun Kelly starring, I believe, Charles Bronson, who gets a shout-out in the last movie. The guy who's got the big dick. He's digging tunnels. He's like Charles Bronson. And we're going to get some Madonna later on as well. So we definitely have our themes. And speaking of Reservoir Dogs, here we have our old friend, Mr. Pink. A 
I really hope that his re- reference to Douglas Sirk steak would have started a whole Douglas Sirk revival, but unfortunately it didn't. Now this cracks me up. This $5 shake thing really cracks me up now here in 2019. Because, man, I can't go over to Bigby Coffee and get anything less for about five bucks. Yeah, that's a freaking smoothie, you know? Milkshake's probably way more than that. And I'm talking about stuff without bourbon in it. Oh, how the times have changed. The red apple cigarettes, we've already had mention of those. Oh, people love to talk about that. Oh, she was in Cowgirls, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and he was in Urban Cowboy. That's their connection. That's probably from the uh, 50 Things You Didn't Know About Pulp Fiction YouTube video, one of five or 10 or 20 or 30 that you can see right now over on YouTube. So female secret agents, of course, that would inform Kill Bill. This whole idea of the women with the different super abilities, yada, yada. I mean, it doesn't break down exactly the same, but we did get pretty close. It doesn't necessarily make sense that a Japanese person would be a kung fu master, um, I guess, but... And I really think that Oranishi, her specialty was more of swords, but... And at least Beatrix Kiddo did not tell corny jokes in that movie. At least as far as I remember. It's one of those laws of diminishing returns for you when it comes to Tarantino films. Like, I love Reservoir Dogs. Pretty good with Pulp Fiction, and then it just kind of tapers off from there. So, like... I've only seen the last few films once, and it used to be, you know, you have to see them at the theater, but when I came to Hateful Eight, I was like, yeah, I'm going to skip the theater, and I'll just check it out on video. Probably with the next one, I'll check it out on uh, at the movies, since they're not doing this whole idea of the road show and all that kind of bullshit, was, which was, to me, more of an excuse to just sell higher price tickets and frankly i don't believe that the amc theater around here actually shows things in 70 millimeter um i it's the same thing while they have like the some people call the limax theater where they just take a regular movie theater and take the uh the draping off around the uh the masking i should say off around the screen and call that an imax screen yeah that's not really the thing
It was very nice, by the way, opening up Pulp Fiction by Dana Poland and seeing me listed like right at the beginning of the <laughs> the book. I was very surprised by that. Uh, I used to collect books about Tarantino just to see if I had a mention in them. And uh, I had never read that BFI book and, until I was uh, decided to do this commentary. And then when I open it up, it's like, oh, there I am. And it was funny how much time they spent talking about the spelling, <laughs> like how Tarantino doesn't know necessarily how to spell that well, nor do Tarantino fans. I used to have a, a part of my website, which was called the anti-Tarantino section. And it had a guest book in there where people could leave comments because that was the thing that you did on the internet was have a guest book. And my God, the amount of bile and hatred that I got on there was fantastic. Tarantino fans are, if nothing else, they're very rabid about uh, their love of Tarantino, their love of his films. And they also are notoriously bad spellers. So <laughs> So Dana spent a lot of time talking about the poor spelling that was on that guest book and actually on other websites as well, even the fan sites and calling out all these spelling mistakes on the fan sites. I think it was a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel, but, you know, I was fine that they did that. As opposed to another book that I picked up, which was Pulp Fiction by Neville Langley, where I think it was within the first two pages where Neville was recounting the other films that Tarantino had made and had a title in there for a movie that was never made. So I pretty much ended up just throwing that book across the room. So, yeah, kind of garbage. Uh, I mean, Tarantino has announced a lot of projects that have never come to be, but... Uh, you should probably at least make sure that the movie is out and a real thing before you put it into your book and say, this was one of them. So I don't know if Mia's getting ready in a bathroom. I don't think so before, but here we have one of the first bathroom shots. Apparently that I Say Goddamn is supposed to be a reference to a Steppenwolf song. I'm not exactly sure what that one is, but that's what it says in the script. So like I said, Vincent's a little bit of a Luddite. He's more familiar with older culture than he is present culture. So him not necessarily watching television, knowing what a pilot is, that's more of a, I'm not hip to the current times, but him knowing who Mamie Van Doren and Jane Mansfield are, that definitely is. I should probably talk about her hair as well, which I think is a little bit of a nod to Anna Karenina in, um, in the Godard films, the way that she had her hair styled in a lot of those. Uma Thurman has made some interesting choices through her career as far as who she's going to work with. And for the most part, she's done a great job of working with some very interesting directors, different co-stars, especially her early days when she was doing work with, gosh, um, 
Terry Gilliam, Gus Van Zant. I know a lot of people rag, a lot of people rag on that. Even cowgirls get the blues, but I thought it was decent. Um, Philip Kaufman, of course, with Henry and June. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about Henry and June again as we're going to get Maria de Medeiros um, coming up here. I think I'm saying her name wrong. I apologize. But then, you know, she's been in her fair share of crap as well. Actually, speaking of my ex-wife, the first movie I ever took her to see was Jennifer 8, which was really a piece of shit and kind of put me off of uh, <laughs> put me off of Andy Garcia pretty much for the rest of my life. And speaking of uh, Emma Peel and the Avengers, uh, of course, she would end up playing Emma Peel in the 1998 Avengers film, which uh, don't rent that if you're expecting Robert Downey Jr. And oh my God, is that movie bad? Speaking about bad movies. So like I was saying, in 19... I think I made You're Still Not Fooling Anybody probably at the end of 95. And it was more of a joke than a serious thing. I was incensed about the whole City on Fire Reservoir Dogs thing just because I love Reservoir Dogs so much. And I was a little mad having read all these articles and tracking down all this information, looking up all this stuff in a pre-internet age. Uh, of Tarantino's influences, interviews with him where he would talk about things that really influenced Reservoir Dogs, but him never mentioning City on Fire. Of all the movies, him never mentioning City on Fire. So um, when I found out that that was such a major source, that was really, I was really a little bit angry about it. So I uh, went out of my way to uh, be kind of a, a prick about that stuff. This dialogue differed a little bit from the screenplay, which was good. It was a good little speech by her. Dancing in films, of course, has a long history. Tarantino would tell you that this was influenced by A Band Apart by Godard. Though some other people would say, no, it's actually more... Um, influenced by the Aristocats, the Disney film. Some people would say that it's influenced by uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half. Some people would even say that there are angles in here that look like they're right out of Who is Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, this wasn't something that was really concerning me as far as a ripoff. I, I always kept looking for a movie that was exactly like this, but there never necessarily was. There aren't too many movies that just kind of stop dead cold to watch our main character here uh, cutting a rug, but gives you more about his character. So yeah, after being the guy who 
complaints about Tarantino ripping off stuff. Like I said, people would send me things and say, hey, there's this, there's that, there's this other thing. You should check this out. So I've watched a lot of movies that have little bits and pieces that kind of add up to some of Pulp Fiction. You know, I just gave you a whole list of a few things there that, where some of these dance moves come from, some of this idea of stopping the movie to dance. Um, Yeah, so... It was more of a pastiche. He was much better at hiding his influences when it came to this. I think also having that influence by Roger Avery helped a little bit. To have two people in here rather than just one helped out quite a bit. Her hairstyle definitely speaks to some older films, whereas Vincent's hairstyle, eh, kind of a sign of the times, but this whole idea of this... uh, what would you call that? Like a mullet with a ponytail? I'm not exactly sure what you would do, but uh, that was lampooned so much, including by the uh, the former editor of Film Threat Magazine, actually back to being the current editor of Film Threat Magazine, Chris Gore. He did a movie called My Big Fat Independent Movie, where he had characters that were dressed up like Jules and Vincent. Also, of course, the... Uh, the world-famous Plump Fiction, which was a uh, lampooning of this somewhat. I can't remember that movie being necessarily that good, but I have seen it. So just as things are starting to go well... We've got Vincent making his first foray into the bathroom. I've always seen this bathroom thing as being influenced by two things. One of them being Tin Men, where they're talking about um, Bonanza and the whole idea of uh, Paul Cartwright and the brothers never having to take a piss and the idea of them you know, using the bathroom and this whole idea of, you know, let's talk about um, popular culture in a film and have these kind of weightier discussions about pop culture during this other film, that's definitely something that Tarantino specialized in. And then his, you know, the people that kind of were eating from his dog bowl, like Kevin Smith, you know, hey, let's talk about the workers on the, um, the Death Star. And then the other thing... I think it was influenced by is uh, one of the producers of Reservoir Dogs, Monty Hellman. He had a movie called Flight to Fury. And in that movie, uh, one of our characters goes to the bathroom in a airplane. And that's when we, we experience the airplane having engine trouble by this guy being in the bathroom and then suddenly it kind of, you know, the whole thing shaking and him flying around like he was on a Star Trek episode. So it was a nice economical way of just having this one character be the experience of this plane having trouble. Then by the time he comes, you know, he leaves the bathroom and comes back, the plane's already on its way down. So that to me is kind of more the influence for why we have all this bathroom stuff.
This is a pretty good cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon by Urge Overkill. Urge Overkill had a lot of great stuff. I kind of wish that they had gotten bigger than they ended up being. Uh, I kind of equate this uh, with being uh, kind of a, a help to get more people to know Neil Diamond um, during the 90s and into the 2000s. I mean, of course, playing Sweet Caroline during every, um, you know, uh, Reds game or whoever that is up in Boston. I think that helps too. Red Sox, I guess that is. Sorry, I'm not a sports guy. But yeah, it's one of these things where every time Vincent goes to the bathroom, something bad is happening outside. But you know what, Mia? You found drugs in this guy's pocket. Maybe you shouldn't take them. Maybe you should stay to your own drugs. I think we just did the zoom in, pull out, or zoom out, pull, push in, uh, jaws effect that, or vertigo effect to show that stuff is bad. There was supposed to be a whole lot more with Mia, like her having the vomit on her face and stuff. We were supposed to be seeing her crawl around on the floor and experiencing this whole drug overdose. I think this is more effective just showing her already there. I think all of the choices that Tarantino made for this um, were pretty smart, other than maybe the um, removal of Monster Joe, Dick Miller, uh, R.I.P., having him taken out of here, and just leaving Julia Sweeney, eh, maybe could have been better. So here's another theme of this movie, which is let's take problems to somebody else's house, and especially it's the Vincent character. Hey, I just made a mess, or a mess have been made has been made, so let me take this problem to somebody else's house, and let me take it to a house of somebody who's wearing a bathrobe. In this case, we have Lance watching his Three Stooges, eating his fruit brute. Shots have been fired in the obscure pulp, pop culture reference uh, arena here. There's supposed to be a whole lot of discussion here between him and uh, Rosanna Arquette. There we go. Apparently, Lance does not have an answering machine. The uh, captions for this say, do not bring a pooba to my house, but I think the line is actually supposed to be poop butt. Boy, that really puts a, a 
fine point on it when it comes to the times, doesn't it? This whole, talk, are you talking to me on a cellular phone? That used to be the worry for a lot more people. I mean, it still should be a worry. If if anything, you know, Apple FaceTime can just record you. But, uh, you know, you might want to be more careful with your phone conversations. Of course, that was two cars, one passing by, one already parked there on the, the lawn. One of those, probably not this crashed one, is... Uh, Quentin Tarantino's actual car that he bought with money from Reservoir Dogs, if memory serves. There's also a theme in this movie as far as, like, it feels like a sitcom. You know, there are, hey, uh, somebody put laxative in the babysitter's coffee, and now we have to solve the problem. Who's got the, the coffee cup? before mom gets home, yada, yada, or those kind of things, you know? And so here we have, hey, the boss's wife is uh, ODing on heroin. We have to make sure that she uh, gets better before the boss finds out and uh, kills us all. Operation and life. Tarantino loves board games. Apparently he played the uh, Welcome Back Cotter board game with uh, Travolta the first time that they met. Tarantino lived in the apartment that Tar that Travolta had lived in years before was also one of the stories. I don't know how many of those how much of those stories are apocryphal or not. I mean, with Tarantino, I don't really trust the guy farther than I can throw him, and I shouldn't throw anybody with my bad back. But I don't really trust a lot of the things that he says because I know that he um, prefers the legend to the truth. I mean, things like my best friend's birthday, where he's like, oh, yeah, that uh, burned up in a laboratory fire. And then parts of it show up out on the Internet. And he's, oh, yeah, the rest of it burned up in laboratory fire. And then only to admit recently, oh, no, actually, that uh, that that didn't happen. And meanwhile, he lied directly to uh, his uh, co-director's face about it. So this story is coming right out of a film that Martin Scorsese made called American Boy, a portrait of Stephen Prince, where he talks about bringing a girl that having a girl OD on him and him getting out an adrenaline shot, counting down her ribs, making a mark on her chest with a magic marker, and then just plunging that needle into her chest and her waking up just like that. Um, so we know that Tarantino probably saw that short. Well, he must have seen that short because it is beat for beat. Stephen Prince, uh, most people would remember him as being the... Um, most people remember him being the arms dealer, the, the gun seller in uh, Taxi Driver. I think that this, we ended up shooting the this uh, needle going in backwards. The plunge. But I don't remember if that's true, because usually it didn't look backwards, but it was a nice brief shot, which is good. Too many times you get these backward shots where you're just like, oh, God, that looked terrible. 
Very, very nice framing here. It's almost like a picture. I'm glad they changed that line. It was supposed to be, does anybody want a beer? If this is a process shot, it looks darn good. There are other process shots, especially during the driving scenes, where it looks bad, and it's supposed to look bad on purpose. Later on, when Butch gets in Esmeralda Villalobos' car, the background is actually black and white, kind of more again to throw us back in that uh, Nightfall-type world or any number of boxing films. So one of the first instances of somebody getting new clothes because of something happening here. Later on, of course, we'll have Vincent getting some new clothes after he blows Marvin's head off. Jokes were big in Tarantino films. I mean, you think about the scene in Natural Born Killers where Mickey Knox is telling a joke. There's stories, which are also important, things like the commode story and Reservoir Dogs. But really, this whole idea of jokes, usually with a punchline that is emphasized with a gunshot. Uh, but luckily, there's no gunshot in this one. I believe that's the last we see of Mia Wallace in this film. I'm almost surprised there wasn't a cartoon kiss that came off of his hand at that point. So yeah, we're not exactly halfway through the film, but... I did say that right at the center of this film is this whole idea of the gold watch. So we're pretty close to it. We're an hour in with an hour and a half left to go. So I guess if we went another 15 minutes, we'd be directly there. The woman playing Butch's mother, Brenda Hillhouse, she would work with Tarantino a few more times. She was uh, hostage Gloria Hill in From Dust Till Dawn, and she also played Mrs. Schaefer in the episode of ER that Tarantino directed called Motherhood, which is ironic since she's Butch's mother in here. She had had a long career working on stuff. She was even in My Best Friend's Birthday. So, um, which Steve Puchowski from Shock Cinema called that film the uh, Rosetta Stone of Tarantino's work, which I, that line has stuck with me for all these years because I find that incredibly true. If you see that movie, it will really show you a lot of foreshadowing of a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, Tarantino liked to reuse things, even some of his own things. Um, 
you know, I was talking earlier about the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen speech. That had been around for a few times. Um, he actually had tried to use that in the original From Dust Till Dawn script, which From Dust Till Dawn was written before Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction came out before From Dust Till Dawn. So by that time, they had to rewrite that or uh, change it a little bit. But the Harvey Keitel character in that film, uh, in that screenplay, I should say, gives the Ezekiel 2517 speech pretty much the exact same order as it is in this and thus in The Bodyguard. Um, so yeah, he was trying to use it there, wasn't able to use it, so was able to use it in this film. But there are lines, there are certain things, uh, certain speech patterns, those kind of things that he'll use throughout all of his films, but all of it going back to my best friend's birthday. So... It's a very interesting film in that way. I can't say that it's a good film, but it's an interesting film. It's funny that we have Christopher Walken in here giving this speech, and he would give a speech in True Romance, the whole speech about... uh, um, well, actually, I take that back. I want to say it's Dennis Hopper who gives the speech about Sicilians, and he's playing the mob boss in there. So he's more the uh, the listener to the speech than he is actually the giver. But he had kind of a kind of a relationship to Tarantino movies, though Tarantino had very little to do with the actual making of True Romance, if memory serves. He was more just in the, the writer capacity, and also that movie was written in a fractured time. Uh, way and then was presented more in a linear way by Tony Scott. I don't know how effective that would have been and it's a little much having every single one of your screenplays being told in a fractured time way. It becomes less of a trademark and more of just a way to muddy the waters to make yourself look deep. I mean, you know, it's great that uh, that Christopher Nolan did Memento, but if you know, if if The Dark Knight was told in a fractured time uh, arena, I'm not sure if that necessarily works. So you got to try different things sometimes. So maybe lay off the title cards, some of those kind of things. I'm always curious if Christopher Walken being cast in this role was kind of a nod to him being uh, in The Deer Hunter. This whole idea of uh, being a prisoner of war in Vietnam. So yeah, like I said, right at the heart of the movie, we're talking about sticking things up people's asses, or his ass in particular. I believe Christopher Walken's asshole is at the center of this whole movie, and it just branches out from there. So after telling Butch that he had it up his ass for two years, then Butch, little Butch takes it. And now we have Big Butch with the movie trope of sitting straight up in bed after you've had a bad dream. Only in the movies, I believe. I don't know if anybody out there has ever sat straight up in bed after having a bad dream. So much like how Reservoir Dogs doesn't show the robbery, Pulp Fiction doesn't show the actual fight here. Which is fine. 
we're much more interested in the aftermath. We hear what happens in this film, in this fight. What did I say about title cards? Esmeralda Villalobos, this actress was in a film called Curdled, which was a short film, later to be a longer film, where she was a uh, she would clean up crime scenes. Uh, this was before CSI, but there was around the time that there was a story on NPR, I believe, about people that clean up crime scenes. Oh, shot of her barefoot. Imagine that. Uh, Vossler versus Martinez on the sign there. That's a reference to some of the guys that Tarantino worked with at Video Archives. So this has to be after the diner scene. There's no jewels here, so he's probably walking the earth at this moment. Oh, I take it back. There's... There's Miss Wallace right there. Now they already have a secret between them. Still the back of Marcellus Wallace's head. We haven't seen Ving Rhames yet. So Jules is going to be walking the earth, and Marcellus is going to be scouring the earth. I don't think it's in this movie where they talk about their names. See, like I said, the black and white back there behind them in this process shot. Yeah, there's this whole discussion that takes place in the screenplay about Esmeralda Villalobos, meaning Esmeralda of the Wolves, though I thought Villa meant city. And then Butch, his name doesn't mean shit because it's an American name. Kind of reminds me of that line in uh, Top Secret where uh, Nick uh, Nick's father thought of his name while he was shaving. Esmeralda maybe doesn't give the best performance in the world, but at least she's better than Fabian. I, I'm sorry, I'm apologizing in advance here that uh, I have no love for the Fabian character, nor do I really care for the Butch character too much, uh, especially the way that they interact. By the way, this is Angela Jones, is the is Esmeralda Villalobos. And she's gone on to be in a lot of other things, um, including that motherhood episode of ER that I mentioned earlier. And then Curled came out in 96, but the short for Curled was 91. So in between there, that's when uh, she and Tarantino met. Um, the director of Curled, um, Reb Braddock, um, ended up by, I'm pretty sure that Tarantino produced that film. I, I'm pretty sure he had something to do with that. For a little while, Tarantino would try to put his money where his mouth was, 
when it came to supporting other filmmakers. You know, he had his whole Rolling Thunder thing where he would bring out films from other countries or even some American films where, you know, whether he was ripping those off or not, um, he would be bringing those out, which was kind of nice. Oh, okay, sorry. There was the line about American names don't mean shit. I thought for sure that that got cut out. But, um, yeah, and then he kind of quit doing that, as far as I know. he uh, <laughs> that, that was a short-lived thing. And you would think now, in the age of uh, digital and Blu-ray and all those things, that maybe he would start that up again. Hell, maybe uh, make a Quentin Tarantino streaming channel. But, no, he's too busy with the new Beverly, where he insists on showing everything in 35mm. I mean, that's his choice. He can do whatever the fuck he wants to do. That's absolutely fine. Um but, you know, I, I think he could give back to the film community a little bit more. I mean, other than producing his own stuff, he hasn't really produced anything for anybody else since 2008, I guess, with uh, a movie called Hell Ride, Larry Bishop's Hell Ride. Um, but, yeah, so that's, it's been a while. I mean, I know that he spent a lot of years kind of holed up in his uh, house just smoking dope and enjoying the the world and everything between projects. And that's his, again, that's his choice. He can do whatever the fuck he wants to do. But then don't try to tell me in a book about Pulp Fiction that uh, Tarantino is adamantly anti-drug. Um, I mean, you can be anti-coke, anti-heroin, all that kind of stuff, still have it in your movies, but I know for a fact that Tarantino loves his pot, so don't try to tell me that he's anti-drug. So he's going out to Tennessee, which of course is where Tarantino is from, originally born in Knoxville. We're going to get some Knoxville we're going to get some Tennessee references uh, later on here with Butch. I'm not sure exactly how much of this part of the film was written by Avery. It's always tough to tell. But some people say that this entire section was. Other people say, no, just the Gold Watch story itself, which was... You know, the whole thing of uh, uh, walking, coming, and telling that little story. It seems like he should, you know, I think he wrote more than that. So, and again, some people say that he kind of sold off his uh, screenwriting rights and just got the story by credit, which he really should have gotten more. Oh, yeah. Let's not call her by her name. Everything is going to be... Like baby talk, nicknames, and there are a lot of nicknames in this film. I mean, Paul with, uh, I think Paul's actual name is Paul in this movie, Paul Calderon, and his character's name is Paul, but this, my name is Paul, that's between y'all, and then um, Samuel L. Jackson, my name's Pitt, and I don't remember you asking you shit. Some of those kind of rhymes here, but uh, yeah, we've got a lot of nicknames going on, uh, especially for Fabian. This whole I wish I had a pot thing. Oh my god. So annoying. These characters are so annoying. She's so annoying. 
She calls him Fatso. There's our Madonna reference. He talks about punching her in her stomach. Later on, they'll call one of them calls the other one imbecile. It's just it's not a healthy relationship. It is not healthy. So yeah, there's a real fascination with French and French culture here. Of course, I talked about the uh, Francois Truffaut and Godard um, influences on this film. But then even when it comes to like killing Zoe, there's going to be, uh, I think the robbery takes place possibly in Amsterdam. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. In fact, I think I've only seen it once at the theater. And that one did have freaking cartoons in it. But yeah, I believe the character of Fabian being French is part of all that. And then the use of Julie Delpy and killing Zoe. And we're going to talk a little bit about film noir and some of the tropes that played into that and Pulp Fiction, the actual phenomenon of Pulp Fiction itself. I mean, there were a lot of tropes in that. Detectives, gangsters, boxers, this whole idea of the underworld, the underbelly. Boxing and organized crime went together like peas and carrots. So you had a lot of that. I mean, there's a rich tradition of boxing in films noir. And I would say that this is kind of a, a neo-noir. I mean, I, I definitely think that Reservoir Dogs was a neo-noir. I mean, the whole idea of the flashback structure is something that a lot of noirs employ. I mean, all the way back to, if you want to include Citizen Kane as a neo-noir, then go right ahead. Or, or sorry, as a film noir, go right ahead. I, I won't stop you. But that, I mean, fractured timelines go way back, and uh, including all the way back to that film and, and beyond. But um, the use of the, I always said that Mr. Orange was kind of the femme fatale in that movie. The whole idea that he kind of seduces Mr. White, um, the way that they have their camaraderie, is kind of that. Walter Neff and uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck type of uh, relationship. I know Frederick McMurray relationship. But anyway, I, I wrote a whole term paper on it years ago. I, I thought it was better than the professor did. One of the first times that we've got uh, Tarantino refusing to subtitle something that's spoken in another language, which is okay. I always thought it was weird the way that they use subtitles in Inglorious Bastards. I had real trouble with that. And sometimes using the actual German word in the English subtitles was kind of strange. Uh, he's he's kind of doing his uh, 12 Monkeys thing. 
See what I'm saying? Unhealthy relationship. So I thought that this was the next day, but no, it's just later on in the evening. Lemon pie, sugar pop, my God. The only time he does say her name is when he's making fun of her and using that mongoloid voice. I thought this was kind of a nice thing of her brushing her teeth, him falling asleep, waking up and thinking that she's still brushing her teeth. I also wonder how these two characters met. Surprised people didn't lose their mind over what which tattoos are and what they mean. Some people have just dissected this movie beyond reason. But then you hear the same stories over and over again. You know, I made mention before the, all those YouTube videos. It's just like, enough, guys. I don't need to hear the story of the bad motherfucker wallet, you know, 20 times. I guess that's a Jesus Christ pose, but uh, again, I think that would be stretching a little bit. There he goes again, sitting straight up in bed. Speaking of movies that Tarantino could have brought back out with Rolling Thunder, I think The Losers would have been a good one. That's the movie that's on TV. Bikers versus the Viet Cong. I believe that Adam Rourke was in that film, who was also in Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, which I referenced before with the whole robbery thing. I'm very surprised that no one is going into why the watch is hanging on a kangaroo. I mean, could could we read some something into this whole thing something to do with Australia is that where Butch really wants to escape to is it that he wants to turn his world upside down yeah no I don't think so but if you're going to pull apart this movie pull apart a little bit more of it look at some of these other things Again, talking about food. This movie will make you hungry. I mean, a lot of times when you see like fan posters for this, they focus on that big kahuna burger. She really likes talking about these blueberry pancakes. It's a nice push in here. I haven't talked a little I haven't talked too much about the actual filmmaking of this movie. It's a very well-made film. Especially here as he's having this realization about the watch. 
getting closer and closer. And then coming up pretty soon, we're going to have one of many Steadicam shots. Tarantino liked his long takes, liked his Steadicam. So yeah, Butch having a meltdown, push in on her. Surprised she doesn't just burst out crying. And the screenplay actually picks up the TV and throws it across the room. It's a little bit more violent. So yeah, watch is very important to a movie where we talk about time so much and breaking the, the time into so many different pieces. Really, this is called Three Stories About One Story, but we have so many pieces. I know there was a linear edit of this film that was done that actually starts with the Christopher Walken section since that takes place much more in the past. I think 1972 is when it's set. And then we end it with Butch and Fabian riding off into the sunset on... Zed's bike, because that is ostensibly the last part of the movie. Again, there's a lot of dialogue that was cut here as he makes his way to the apartment, which, again, I think it's a very smart thing. He talks about how this is his war, his personal war, that his father's gone through war, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and this is his war. And I think that we get that without having Bruce Willis actually say that out loud. Bruce Willis is usually better than his material insofar as he's made a lot of shitty movies over the last, say, 10 years. And I think he's better than those movies are. He should be used in a better way. But I'm not sure if he's had tax troubles and is just doing the uh, the Nick Cage thing. But then Nick Cage will end up in a movie and you're just like, wow, that that was actually spectacular. It was great seeing you in that. Uh, whereas Bruce Willis has been in a lot of forgettable shit over the last 10 years. I mean, uh, it's there's been a lot of bad stuff. Um, you know, things like Airstrike or uh, the remake of Death Wish. Uh, you know, his... Uh, God, what was it? Uh, Rock the Casbah. Just, yeah, there's, a, there's been a lot of um, unfortunate things. I mean, his appearance in The Expendables 2 was okay. I guess really, and I'm not a Wes Anderson fan at all, but I guess really his last good performance for me was in Moonrise Kingdom or Looper. That was 2012. I did not see Sin City, A Dame to Die For, I uh, just or Dame to Kill For. I've just I've not heard anything good about that one, though I liked the first Sin City quite a bit. So yeah, there was a lot more to that whole discussion there, which again I'm glad that they cut. It's a nice steady cam shot. We hear a commercial for Jackrabbit Slims, I believe, as he's going through here. 
kind of reminds me of after Mr. White has uh, shot his two guns at the cop car and Reservoir Dogs and the way that we follow he and Mr. Orange down that hallway, down that uh, alleyway, I should say. Speaking of hallways, we did get that study cam in the very beginning when we were following uh, Jules and Vincent through the hallways uh, before they went into Brett's apartment. And this is nice. We identify with Butch. We're a little bit back from him, so we can see some more than what he necessarily sees. And now this is pretty much a POV shot, even though we went over his shoulder. Surprised I haven't read any articles about the dis difference between houses and apartments and the different apartment layouts in Pulp Fiction. I mean, I've read a lot of different discussions of the film, but that was actually one that I missed. Also, the use of music. I was very surprised that while I was doing my research, I didn't actually read more about the use of the music in here. By the time we got to this film, Tarantino knew enough to not put in musical cues. He did musical cues in Reservoir Dogs. Um, he would actually say what the songs were that he wanted to use. In this one, he kind of gave some flavor to it, but not the exact songs. I know that there was discussion about him wanting to use My Sharona for the anal rape scene that's coming up. Um, I think that it was uh, better using the song that they ended up using. It didn't look like a kangaroo, but I guess it was. It looked like one of those uh, little Chinese cats. So yeah, here again, we've got poor Vincent in the bathroom, reading his book, reading his Modesty Blaze. Modesty Blaze, which would be adapted again, because it's been adapted before, but adapted again actually by Scott Spiegel, who has a personal connection with... Um, Quentin Tarantino. He introduced Tarantino to Lawrence Bender. Scott Spiegel ended up making a film called My Name is Modesty in a few years after this. And Scott Spiegel, fellow Michigander. So I mentioned Chris Gore before, also from Michigan. And here we have Scott Spiegel, also from Michigan, was involved in a lot of films like uh, he directed Intruder. He was involved with the Evil Dead films. So his name and Raimi and Campbell, those all kind of go together. So there is a crossover between the uh, the Raimi-verse, if you will, and the uh, Tarantino-verse. I haven't seen My Name is Modesty, but I'd be interested Spiegel's done some interesting work over the years. Not only as a writer and director, but as an actor as well. So, pretty much our main character, I would say Vincent's our main character of this film, has been killed. But I suppose all bad guys have to have their comeuppance, and that was his moment. That's what you get... Not only do you get your car keyed, but you also get shot by the guy that you call a palooka. Speaking of CSI. 
Don't forget your Pop-Tarts. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. It's kind of my job to point out Michigan connections between uh, this film and, and, well, Michigan connections between Michigan and any film, really. That's one of the things that I do. I don't know why I'm a proud Michigander. I guess just because I've been around here for so many years. Glad that we didn't have to see the entire walk back to his car. Or to uh, Fabian's car, I should say. So we had a little bit of a psycho reference earlier when we saw Lance making that stabbing motion at uh, Mia's chest. Boy, he's got dirty car windows, doesn't he? Not there, though. They're just dirty on the other side. But anyway, um... Talked about the psycho reference earlier with Lance and the stabbing motion, and we're definitely going to get that again here. This is very much the scene from Psycho, where Marion's Caesar boss crossing the street. We have Marcellus coming over from the donut place with his two cups of coffee on his way back to Vincent. But Marion doesn't try to kill her boss. Important difference. Would have been a whole different movie. One of many fades to black. Kathy Griffith over there on the left-hand side of the screen. Early appearance from her. She was already doing stand-up. This is before she cut off President Trump's head and was waving it around. Still don't understand why she got into trouble for that. And really, him crossing the crosswalk was the first time that we saw what Marcellus looked like. And he doesn't look like a bitch. Nice double take. Oh, an innocent woman being shot. Again, kind of reservoir dogs there. And the running down the street, also kind of like uh, Mr. Pink and reservoir dogs. And some pink behind Butch there. Nice uh, split diopter shot. Tarantino loves his De Palma. Oh, here's that Red Dress song in the background. Dwayne Whitaker as Maynard. Dwayne Whitaker, mostly known to me for... Um, being in his film about uh, Elvis. What was that called? Eddie Presley, that's what it was, from 1992, so a couple years before this. But yeah, he was um, mostly an actor, but um, 
He's also done a little bit of writing and producing and uh, second unit directing as well, including Eddie Presley. He was the writer of that. He wrote um, the screenplay for Dust Till Dawn 2 and uh, the screenplay for Strip Teaser. So he kind of hitched his... Uh, Hitched his start to that Tarantino wagon after a little while. But it hasn't necessarily worked out too well recently. And then, man, coming up here we see Zed, who was played by Peter Green. Peter Green is fucking amazing. He is so good. And I just... Uh, I mean, he was in Clean Shaven, which... If you haven't seen that movie, you really should see that movie. But then he he's mostly known, unfortunately, for shit like The Mask, where he was the bad guy in The Mask. And he'll show up occasionally in things, and it's just like, oh, there's Peter Green. And you really, like, you want him to be in stuff that's better than it is. Uh, but unfortunately, he's just been in a whole bunch of garbage. But when he gets a chance, when he can be in a good movie... He is fucking amazing. And unfortunately in this, it's just too little. Too, too little. Though he loves rocking the, uh, what do they call it? The Manscara, I think they call it. Or the Guy Liner. There we go. It was supposed to be a buzzer. I'm glad they changed it to that light, happy doorbell. Gives a little punch to the scene. That line about, I thought you wanted to wait for me. It's supposed to be a little bit later. Talk more about the the beat up, but I imagine there's blood upstairs. I love that uh, Zed is a cop. Just this kind of nice commentary about how fucking twisted police are. So at this moment, we don't know who Grace is. We'll find out later on that she's his uh, chopper. The Gimp is played by the husband of Julia Sweeney. Julia Sweeney also kind of on that Tarantino train for a few years. Uh, he did a rewrite of uh, the amazing It's Pat movie. One of the lesser-known adaptations uh, um, coming from uh, Saturday Night Live. Oh my God! Yeah, it's it's not good. Um, and then the the uh, so yeah, the gimp is Stephen Hibbert, who uh, also helped write uh, It's Pat, and uh, he was an actor in The Cat in the Hat. So uh, yeah, this guy's really batting um, not a lot. Let's just say that.
there's not a lot of... I'm surprised that they... Yeah, oh, there, there we go. Another N-word. Got to do it. Yeah, not a lot of uh, male rape in movies. But definitely in this one, definitely in Deliverance, uh, there was a movie with, uh, I think it was Clive Owen a few years ago, where that played a big part. But of course... But of course... You know, you can't just rape a man. There has to be revenge, and it usually has to be pretty immediate. I mean, I guess I guess you could say this is a rape-revenge film. Not as much as something like, um, uh, what was that one? Um, not Elphaba, because that was from Wizard of Oz. Maleficent, that uh, Disney film from a, years, a few years ago, that was totally a rape-revenge film. I've always been curious about what role the GIMP plays in this relationship. I guess I want like a GIMP origin story. If this was directed by that a-hole that did uh, 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 Donnie Darko, we'd probably have like a whole comic series about who these characters were before we met them. I really like that dirty horn that is in this song. I mean, I really think that this was the perfect song for this rape scene, more than my Sharona. Yeah, it's such an offense. You know, I mean, rape is a terrible thing. I'm not trying to downplay that whatsoever, but male rape in movies is always portrayed as being so much worse than it is for women because, you know, it's male filmmakers. So it's just a terrible, terrible thing for Butch to even have to be around this. And even though Marcellus Wallace is pretty much his enemy, he's going to have to think twice here. So yeah, we've got a Tennessee license plate over his shoulder reminding us uh, where he's supposed to be at. This half a Confederate flag back there. I guess it's appropriate for the Mason-Dixie um, pawn shop that they're at. But also to show us just what a couple rednecks these guys are and that they're pretty much evil. They're not here to make America great again. So we're going to go through all of the different weapons. A lot of people have assigned roles to these weapons. In fact, I think that there are some roles for these in the screenplay, especially um, when he gets the samurai sword, he's said to hold it uh, Takatura Ken style. I mean, you know, this is before, definitely way before Old Boy, but I can't see a hammer in a movie now and not think about Old Boy. Of course, I'm talking about the Spike Lee film. I mean, did they make another version? I believe this is a Hattori Hanzo sword. not too many films where we get to see our hero holding a samurai sword that aren't made in Japan. I 
So this seems like a long time to us. I wonder how long this seems like to Marcellus. Like, hey, why didn't you hurry? Maybe you could have walked a little faster down those stairs. And again, not necessarily a POV shot, but pretty much a POV shot. Another split diopter shot. And this is always a nice move. Get uh, Ogami Ito doing that fairly often. And I'm not sure how Marcellus Wallace moves over here behind him, but it's a nice reveal. Yeah, again, I had hoped that this movie would have put Peter Green more on the map instead of like, hey, it's the rapist. Some weird uses of slow motion in this section. Like that cocking of the gun looked like it was in slow-mo. And of course, the door closed looked like it was in slow-mo. Some just weird choices as far as that goes. But nothing that I'm overly objecting to. I'm glad that I approve, right? I can't believe it's been 25 years since this movie came out. We're still talking about it. This was quite a landmark. I mean, there were so many Tarantino clones and ripoffs after this movie came. I mean, I guess they were inspired first by Reservoir Dogs. But, man, here we go. This is a line from Charlie Varick. One of my favorite films. But yeah, man, things to do in Denver when you're dead. I guess you could call Killing Zoe a, a kind of a Tarantino ripoff. That's not really too appropriate. Uh, Usual Suspects, I would say, was definitely informed by Tarantino. But yeah, just so many. 11 of 45. I mean, there have been articles written. I remember one about quote-unquote scuzz cinema. Uh, that was written years ago, and just talking about the influence of Tarantino's work on there. Two Days in the Valley. I mean, some of them would play more in the comedy, some more on the bloodshed, but all of them, all of them seem to have that same "we're going to hold our guns sideways" kind of a, a thing to it. We're going to put guys in skinny ties and uh, have uh, witty conversations about pop culture. And unfortunately, not very many people could do that well. Even, like I said, when it comes to the parodies, they weren't necessarily done that well. I've not, not really seen that good of a parody of Pulp Fiction. Speaking of film noir, this is very much a film noir type of um, setup here where we've got the two characters facing us having a conversation with one another rather than having 
them speaking to one another. Normally we would have the Ving Graham's character closer to us. Again, we're kind of pointing up, almost as if we're from Zed's point of view, but not quite. But definitely to show that Marcellus is once again in charge, in power. See ya. Stealing a cop's motorcycle, maybe not the best idea, but hey, it works. Probably one of my favorite lines in the movie coming up here where he says that he had to crash that Honda. I know that's not the exact quote, but that's what I like to remember it as. And of course, we get that kind of play with memory in this. Like I was saying before, you have to remember what Honey Bunny says when it comes to the robbery in the Denny's or Hawthorne Diner in this case, that she says a different way. And that's kind of supposed to represent that we actually have different memories of things. I think he actually wrote it out in the screenplay as two different lines. I guess it was close to, I had to crash that Honda. But that's a whole other story away. We have to have the whole Bonnie situation between now and then. Oh, now she cries. When he was freaking out about the watch, you would think she would have cried then. Hopefully they make their 11 o'clock train. Some people say that Zed is a reference to John Borman Zardoz. I don't necessarily buy that. And really, that it should be the end of the movie, but we are fracturing time, so we go to the Bonnie situation. So we go back in time and see Alexis Arquette, the late Alexis Arquette. It was very sad when he passed away, when she passed away. But yet another bathroom situation. Apparently he's been in the bathroom the whole time, this whole movie. So really we have two Arquettes in this movie, and then we had Patricia Arquette in True Romance. So kind of a nice Arquette uh, triumvirate there. So I talked about uh, memory and things being different, but this is just pretty much a replay from earlier. 
that we get these nice flashes going on here. Oh, nope, that was in the original. Here we don't. But we get the nice insert shot of Alexis Arquette. And there we have the bullet holes behind them, which people love to point out. So really, there's the next killing. I mean, we saw the, the boxer got killed off screen. So this movie is very low in the body count. Again, it's more the way that the violence is shown, or sometimes even not shown. I mean, at the end, we might have the same number of dead people that we did in Reservoir Dogs, because pretty much everybody dies in that. Um, I mean, of course, Mr. Pink is uh, off screen when he dies. So like I was saying, a lot of this movie is about redemption and this whole thing of redemption and miracles. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that people online just love to talk about. This is the thing that you would formerly go to a coffee shop and talk about, but now you have to write a blog post about it or make a YouTube video about it. Especially when you have a guy who's quoting an imaginary Bible pay, uh, passage and then having this miracle happen. And then we'll give his life over to some other higher force. But then we also have the anti-miracle of Marvin getting shot right in the face. So it's kind of nice. By now we know that Marcellus is, uh, what's going to happen in his world? Now, do you just not turn your safety on? Again, I'm glad that they changed this. In the original script, they shot him in the neck, and then they had to put him out of his misery. And when they put him out of his misery, that's when the car kind of has that explosion of blood. Their car is messier than uh, the Honda was that Butch was driving.
Yeah, they really talk a lot about the geography of Los Angeles. The Valley, Burbank Studios, Inglewood before. So I think if I knew Los Angeles, I would appreciate this a little bit more. So again, I'm going to bring a trouble, some trouble to your house. Whether it's an OD girl or a corpse in a car, it's a lot of cell phone calls to people wearing bathrobes that are going to be uh, having some issues. I like the reflection of Jules in the mirror back there where he's kind of facing forward even though his reflection or his personage is, is facing to the side. Must have a nice third mirror in that setup to show it that way. Put that favor straight up his ass. So again, talking about asses here. little gynophobia there. I'm talking about being professional and professionalism, this whole idea of treating Jimmy with respect, not messing up his stuff, not fucking up his marriage, drinking his coffee correctly. Uh, probably the most problematic role here, Quentin Tarantino. Not a good actor. Probably the worst performance in here. Maybe only second to uh, Julia, oh God, the, the woman from It's Pat. Probably only second to her, Julia Sweeney. But really, I mean, I don't think Julia Sweeney goes dropping any N-bombs, and he is all about this. He relishes saying that in this scene. So his t-shirt there is Orby. Orby was the mascot of Orbit Magazine here in Detroit. They were the first uh, magazine, weekly alternative magazine. They were the first magazine to give him a cover story. So Reservoir Dogs was the cover of Orbit Magazine probably in 92. I can't remember what month it was. And there was a connection between Orbit Magazine and Film Threat Magazine, which was Paul Zimmerman. Not the, uh, the I think Paul Zimmerman's also a screenwriter, but Paul Zimmerman, the journalist, who uh, went to the original Toronto uh, International Film Festival screening of Reservoir Dogs. It was a great year for the festival. And then he was uh, also working at Film Threat at the time. He managed to talk... Um, Jerry Vile here in Detroit, uh, the head of Orbit, into doing this cover story about Reservoir Dogs, which thrilled him beyond belief, Tarantino beyond belief. And uh, Zimmerman ended up sending him a care package with magazines and uh, this T-shirt that they ended up having to send quite a few because, you know, in movies you need to have quite a few pieces of, uh, of that stuff.
And then, yeah, he was also working for Film Threat when they were doing their coverage of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, they ended up doing a cover story later on, which was, um, that was, what, Chris Penn and Lawrence Tierney on the cover. Now, Bonnie being a black nurse, I also saw as being kind of a nod to Coffee from Jack Hill's Coffee, who's also a black nurse, who was played by Pam Greer, who would end up in uh, Jackie Brown. I guess you could say that Mia Wallace is wearing uh, a robe, but definitely not a bathrobe. And this is... Uh, Another appearance of her. I was, I was completely wrong when I said that was the last time we were going to see her. So she just keeps sh showing up and stuff. So it's nice that Harvey Keitel, also, you know, somebody that we've seen before in Reservoir Dogs, Keitel is basically playing the same type of role that Jean Renault played in La Femme Nikita which was uh, Vincent Cleaner. And then he's going to be playing, oh, speaking of Vincent, he's going to be playing the Vincent the Cleaner in John Badham's Point of No Return, which was a remake of um, La Femme Nikita. And he's basically being the exact same role, which is coming in, helping out. I mean, at least he doesn't have to dissolve any bodies in uh, acid in this movie, which is good. Nice, clever uh, on-screen title there. Though, again, I wish that were in the same font that they were using for the other titles. Again, we saw him introduced through the back of his head and through his handwriting rather than seeing him in person. And now we get to see him in the flesh. So again, time playing a major factor in this. We had time, you know, not just Butch's watch in the last chapter, but this whole idea of waking up at 9 a.m., having to be on the train by 11 a.m. Now we have them showing up at his house at 8.15, Bonnie coming home at 9.30. So not only are we playing with time as a linear notion, but we're also playing with time in each of these chapters. Harvey Keitel was definitely going through a renaissance. I don't think it was necessarily 100% thanks to Reservoir Dogs, because The Bad Lieutenant was also that same year. But we had seen him fairly regularly through a lot of things. But my God. Um, sorry, I was saying Vincent the Cleaner. It's Victor the Cleaner, which was 1993. And yeah, he just took off after this. I mean, like I said, you know, he was in the two Jakes in 90, you know, Last Temptation of Christ in 88. He was in things, but after Reservoir Dogs and The Bad Lieutenant, and then also Pulp Fiction, he was just 
everywhere for a long time, um, which was great. I was glad to see him just really kind of take off after this movie. One of many people who ended up being in Be Cool, um, which was kind of a, a sequel, if you want, to uh, Get Shorty, which also was one of uh, John Travolta's other great roles around this time. I'm trying to remember when the piano was, because that was another big one right around this time. And yet another role where he got to show all of his junk. That was his big thing when it came to uh, the bad lieutenant. So he, he liked being naked for a little bit. I think that was between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And it, he was also doing that whole howling thing for a little bit in uh, both Bad Lieutenant and Pulp Fiction. Not Pulp Fiction, sorry, Reservoir Dogs. And each one of these stories really tells a tale of two people. You know, the, the Jules and Vincent story, the Marcellus and Butch story, the Vincent and Mia story. Each time we have these two people, so we really are talking about relationships when it comes to this. And usually there's a third or fourth kind of coming into it, but for the most part you're talking about two people primarily. And almost always, other than Butch and Marcellus, um, bonding over food when it comes to this. So we're going to have uh, going back to the diner. And I should also mention Honey Bunny and, and uh, Pumpkin as well. Or Ringo and Yolanda, whichever one you want to say. Like I said, there's multiple names for a lot of characters. I like the framing of this from outside of the room. Kind of reminds me of the some of the things that we saw in the uh, the bathroom. Speaking of bathrooms, in Reservoir Dogs, where we have um, also Harvey Keitel, but we have Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi speaking down a hallway, and we get to see them kind of in a similar frame. Also, some very nice framing here. And the less Tarantino speaks, the better. If you guys want to see a really horrible Quentin Tarantino performance, well, other than Django Unchained, I would recommend that you go see uh, Re Destiny Turns on the Radio. My God, was that bad. I mean, that movie is bad overall, but his role in it in particular is really bad. So this is the part I was talking about where uh, Vincent talks about going up to red line. Yep, red. You got me in the red. And this is usually where he says, or in the screenplay, he says that he's going up to red line 7,000.
Which is kind of a back and forth because we've got Guns of Navarone and Superfly TNT happening over here with Jules. So they're both kind of discussing movie titles as uh, points of their anger. Guns of Navarone, pretty darn good film. I remember really liking that. And I want to say that was an early role from uh, Harrison Ford as well. So we have the before, and then pretty soon we'll have the after. Like this whole thing, what you two look like. So there's that line, and then it'll have a marriage line when he says, what do they look like, Jimmy? They look like a couple of dorks. I guess I never really thought about how we have uh, almost all of our main characters uh, stripped down to their naked selves. I mean, we saw Butch in the last one, in the last chapter, all the way naked, and now we've got these two guys. But I have to say Bruce Willis is holding it together a little bit better than John Travolta at this point, but I think he was also a few years his, his younger. Another fade to black. Fade up for the laugh. We've got Crazy Cat and Ignatz Mouse over here on Jules. And then the University of, what is it, Santa Cruz with the uh, banana slugs. Nice dummy of Marvin. So yeah, Monster Joe, originally played by Dick Miller, but unfortunately his scenes got cut. But we do get to see Monster Joe's daughter, Raquel. And yeah, this probably my second least favorite line in this movie. This whole, just because you have character doesn't mean you are a character, or just because you are a character doesn't mean you have character. Sometimes every guy I tell can really give a clunker, and that's one of them. Uh, I don't think the line was particularly well-written either, but he really just does not sell that delivery. Yep, so they cut that scene out with him and just bring us Raquel. Yeah, this whole sequence is just really clunky. This, I see in your future, it's a cab. It's not good. This is not good. Ah, oh, this whole section just sucks.
Oh, man. I thought it was Vincent the Cleaner, not Victor the Cleaner. I'm trying to think of the Beastie Boys line. Uh, oh, please, just cut. Just get out of here. Thank you. So at this point, we don't necessarily know, or we probably shouldn't know, that this is the same diner that Pumpkin and Honey Bunny are at. I was surprised that this line about Arnold wasn't in the screenplay, that that came up later on. I mean, they do talk about animals with personality. I always, in my fantasy, somewhere in this diner, we also have the guys from Mulholland Drive talking about, you know, the one guy having a dream and then going outside to be scared to death. But that's a different movie. It was kind of interesting going from two shot here to individual shots as if they were breaking up. And I guess they are kind of breaking up because they start talking about this miracle which really has them at loggerheads with one another. And you have to say that this was shot very well. I mean, matching the action on the fingers and everything. I don't imagine that they shot this with two cameras and cut it together like that. I imagine this was, you know, shot reverse shot setup. But then you are talking about two very professional actors. According to Hoyle is another Tarantinoism. I mean, I know that's not his phrase, but that's something that he has said, has used in other screenplays. And now we get a little bit closer on these guys as we're going back and forth. I'm surprised that Netflix hasn't done a story, a, a, a series on Jules walking the earth.
Garasan means boy. So yeah, again, I'm very curious through that whole thing. I guess he had Modesty Blaze in the car with him and didn't get blood on it or whatever. So yeah, I'm thinking way too much about this. Actually, it's not to be continued, because I don't think they talk about it after he gets back from the bathroom. Vincent's one of those guys who has to announce when he's going to the bathroom and what he's going to do. I really am not a big fan of folks like that. So like I said, she says this, this line differently. Amanda Plummer. She is one hell of an actress. I remember first seeing her in L.A. Law, where she was Larry Drake's, uh, the character Benny, her his girlfriend, Alice, I believe her name was. And uh, nice steady cam shot here. Um, and then, yeah, she just was in a lot of great things, including, uh, what was it? Was it Johnny Mnemonic or was it... Um, Oh, shit. It was either Johnny Mnemonic or... What's the other one I always get it mixed up with? Oh. Oh, um... No, I usually... Johnny Mc... Oh, no, she was in Free Jack. Sorry, one of my favorite films, Free Jack. And around this time, I think it was a few years later, she was in a movie called... I think it's Butterfly Kiss or Butterfly Kisses. And man, that movie was a rough watch. But uh, she was very impressive in it. I'm very surprised that Tarantino didn't use her again, but she is, she's a little bit like, um, like nitroglycerin. You know, a little of her goes a long way. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. I just think she's a very, very powerful actress. And I wish that uh, she would get a little bit more credit. Uh, I mean, the last thing I remember actually seeing her in was one of those uh, Hunger Games movies, the second one, which was pretty much a replay of the first one. Um, and then, you know, of course, she was one of many fantastic actors in The Fisher King. Uh, speaking of Terry Gilliam, like I was earlier. I suppose at the end of the day, having talked for over two hours and 20 minutes. I suppose this movie could be cut down to move a little faster. Um, I don't know if we necessarily needed two and a half hours of this, but, um, you yeah, know, it's still a damn good movie. Again, I'm surprised people haven't written more about his tattoos on his arms, which pretty much match the placement where Butch's tattoo is, if memory serves. And I'm pretty sure that his name actually isn't Ringo. I think we're just uh, using that as a uh, 
a very nice nickname for somebody from England. You know, possibly he's got a similar uh, accent to Ringo Starr. And then also we've got a little bit of a reference to the Western character Ringo. He's a poet and he doesn't know it. So a lot of this plays out like some of the instructions from Harvey Keitel to actually to Tim Roth in Reservoir Dogs. This whole, you know, sometimes manager's got to be a hero, take the butt of your gun and break his fucking nose with it, blood squirts out. Whole place goes fucking nuts. Everybody freaks out. Sorry, I said earlier that Yolanda says, is that what I think it is? But it's actually Ringo here. So yeah, you would think that it would be the woman because then we could have a Pandora's box kind of a thing going on. Like I said, a little bit of Amanda Plummer goes a long way. Her line about I gotta pee is also kind of a clunker to me, but, you know. Again, it's a, a little bit of a bathroom thing. You know, again, we got a little bit of a bathroom uh, fetish in this one. I remember going to see this at the theater the first time. I saw it down at the Detroit Film Theater here in Detroit. And uh, by this time, people knew a little bit about this movie. They definitely knew about Reservoir Dogs. So there were so many dorks down there wearing their black suits with their skinny ties and stuff. Probably having no idea where that look came from. But just, yeah, they were Tarantino fanboys. And I was seeing it in 94, big time. And man... <sighs> it's it's not a good look, fellas. I mean, it is a good look, but it's not a good look on you. They were the first ones to go out and buy their bad motherfucker wallets. Nice framing here with this. So I guess everybody knows the combination to this briefcase. I really do like how Vincent shows up out of nowhere, and Jules knows that he's there, but nobody else does.
Yeah, kind of a clunker, but okay. But seeing this with an audience was very nice, especially an audience that was very appreciative of this. I mean, we got a laugh when he says it's the one that says bad motherfucker on it. And then when he actually pulls it out and we see that nice insert shot of it, the whole crowd went fucking wild. And this is after, you know, two and a half hours of this movie and they're still going fucking crazy. I feel a little bad not speaking more, but I'm pretty much talked out at this point. And kind of to my earlier point, this speech works a lot better here because it actually becomes part of the narrative as opposed to this is something cool to say. Or I should say some cold-blooded shit to say before somebody pops a cap in somebody's ass. I mean, it kind of fit with From Dust Till Dawn because of the religious implications and the vampires and all those kind of things. But here I think it's better because we get to turn this into a metaphor. I appreciate that we never got the Vega brothers. Just to, I don't know if it would be them now or them before Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. I'm glad that Tarantino hasn't gone back to that well. I mean, we have this whole Tarantino-verse where we get little things like the Red Apple cigarettes and some of those things coming into different realms. And now it's just kind of a little jokey thing. Um, you know, people love to pick up on that stuff almost too much, but... Um, I'm glad that he never did that. I'm also glad that he hasn't done some of the things that he said he was going to do over the years. Things like remaking Faster Pussycat Kill Kill with Britney Spears um, 
I'm not sure in which role she would be. Uh, I would think maybe the, uh, did someone mention my figure, that girl? But yeah, I'm glad for that. So yeah, there is no to be continued as far as the miracle discussion goes. We're just going to play Surf Rider and walk off into the sunset. A lot of sunsets in Los Angeles. Just so everybody can walk or ride off into them. So yeah, we definitely know Vincent's fate, but not so much Jules, which is fine. Well, thank you very much for listening to this overly verbose commentary. I would not be surprised if when Tarantino hits that 10 films number he keeps talking about for the last few years oh, I'm going to retire after 10 films he retires and then he finally records commentary tracks for all of his movies just so he can re-release them all again and he'll have some sort of uh, you know very cool cover art and make them all look as if they were part of you know 10 things that were all part of one set and release them all that way that's my prediction. We'll see if that comes true or not. What do you think? 2025, 20, maybe? Maybe 2030 is when that happens. Well, thanks again. If you've enjoyed listening to me ramble on, be sure to go over to www.projectionboothpodcast.com. And if you didn't enjoy it, I am sorry. Thanks for hanging out with Mike White and I while we watched Pulp Fiction. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched with the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Himalaya. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her on soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time at Carrick Castle.